along the American shoreline, coastal communities are responding and in some cases struggling with rising sea levels, but increasing economic pressure to develop along the shoreline. Hello, everybody. My name is Peter Ravella, and welcome to the Local Control Podcast, where we talk about what local communities can and should do to manage the issues that they face as coastal communities. Uh, We are pleased today to welcome to the Local Control Podcast, Dr. Robert Young, uh, Professor of Geology and Director of the Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Young. Great to be with you. And uh, for the purposes of the call, I can call you Dr. Young or we can go with with, uh, Rob. And not only my mother calls me Dr. Young, so you can call me Rob. <laughs> we'll go with Rob. And uh, Rob, I really thank you for taking time. I think the work that you guys do at the uh, at the Program for Developed Shorelines uh, is absolutely critical and increasingly more important. Uh, and before we jump into a conversation, I need to thank some sponsors uh, to the American Shoreline Podcast Network. We have four. Uh, our sponsors, Dune Doctors from Pensacola, Florida, one of the outstanding natural dune restoration companies, Dune Doctors. You can find them and Frederic Barisset and her great team at dunedoctors.com. LJA Engineering with 28 offices in Texas and over in Florida as well. AJ, LJA Engineering, it's a coastal division headed by my good friend, Bill Worsham, smart guys, excellent firm lja.com and ti coastal services from wilmington north carolina great form over there in your neck of the woods rob uh and uh you can find ti coastal services at ticoastal.com and finally our newest sponsor we're welcoming to the american shoreline podcast network coastal engineering consultants led by michael poff an outstanding coastal engineer they're out of naples florida coastalengineering.com. Reach out to them if you're in the Florida area and facing shoreline and waterway issues. So thanks to our sponsors. Rob, um, we, you and I have had a chance to talk uh, in, over the previous couple of months about, about the work you're doing, and I, I follow it closely. I think uh, the issues that, that you try to tackle at the uh, Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines uh, are really important. Can you tell us the, introduce us to, to, to yourself, how long you've been at Western Carolina and tell us about the, uh, the center, the, the, the program for developed shorelines. Well, I've been at, uh, Western Carolina university now for 22 years. Uh, the program for the study of developed shorelines moved here from Duke, uh, about 12 years ago now. Um, it's, so we are technically a jointly run center, uh, jointly run between WCU and Duke university. Although, you know, most of what's going on is really happening here in the mountains of North Carolina. We maintain a few connections with, uh, with our friends at Duke and, uh, we're somewhat of a unique operation. I think, uh, the people who uh, work here in the program for the study of developed shorelines sort of cover all the bases. We have uh, coastal scientists who are doing basic research on coastal sediment transport processes and 
uh, sea level rise, right. storm impacts. You know, we've received our university's largest National Science Foundation grant. So, you know, we do coastal science, but we also um, have sort of policy wonks and people with management expertise. And the mission of the center really is to take science, uh, coastal science of all kinds, and connect the dots in a way that communicates that science to uh, public and private stakeholders at all levels. And that includes everything from an individual property owner who might have questions about an erosion problem or a particular property they want to purchase, to homeowners associations who are want, need an evaluation of a coastal engineering project design yeah. for their community, to municipalities, uh, state level, federal level. Uh, w- we interact with decision makers and policy at you know all of those different levels and stages. Uh, you know, essentially trying to communicate science to the general public so that people can make wise decisions and um, to sort of connect the dots between um, that some of the scientific data that either that we've collected or that others have collected and policy and management to, to try and make connections that other folks have yet to make. Yeah. So, you know, we try to create new graphics and, um, you know, occasionally the occasional sort of press release or white paper that is looking at coastal issues in a slightly different way from wow. a local perspective, a national perspective, and often also an international perspective. That's fantastic. I think they uh, admire that. I think the connection between good science and, and good policy is uh, unavoidable. And a lot of scientists and a lot of researchers are more comfortable in the world of uh, research and science and not so comfortable in the world of policy. And, uh, and I don't blame them and politics because that's kind of what it comes down to. Uh, but the work at, uh, can we, the, 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 the program that you administer and you're the director of this program, uh, how long have you been the director? And I, was your predecessor, the, the well-known, uh, Dr. Orrin Pilkey? <laughs> Uh, well, I've been the director for 12 years now, and yes, the, I'm the second of two directors. The, the founding director was a gentleman named uh, Oren Pilkey, uh, um, widely uh, known and loved amongst the coastal engineering community. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, Tell us about Oren. I mean, uh, he was, and, and he's not He's not passed, so we can't talk about him as if he's dead, but he's left a tremendous legacy and I think been a very important voice in the discussion of, of coastal issues uh, for decades now. Tell us uh, tell us about your relationship with him, and you got to share one Oren Pilkey story with us. Yeah, we could do a series of podcasts on Oren Pilkey stories. <laughs> we could. That, that's for sure. Um you know, Orrin is one of those guys that even people who have uh, had disputes with him about how to manage the coast, you know, typically ha- enjoy hanging out with him. Um, he was a fabulous graduate advisor uh, just because he's such a character and he and his wife, Charlene, were just such welcoming people. Every party that we had 
when I was a graduate student at Duke was at his house. And, uh, you know, he's self-deprecating and uh, funny and smart and really was an early leader in identifying some of the challenges we were going to be facing at the coast before anybody else was thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Oren has not always been uh, that excited about uh, doing the kind of grunt work that you need to do to find practical solutions. That's to why you have problems. grad students, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the reason why we have a ban on seawall construction on the oceanfront in the state of North Carolina is largely because of the work that Oren Pilkey did and his effort to communicate why that's important to our Coastal Resources Commission and the state legislature. North Carolina was the first state to recognize the harm that sort of indiscriminate armoring of the yeah. ocean shoreline can have to the beaches in front of them. Yeah. And, um, you know, that made him some friends and it made him some enemies. Uh, yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that a large part of what Oren has railed against is, has been proven to be true. Um, and, uh, we had sort of moved past the legacy that he provided, which was to identify some of the more cogent problems that coastal communities will face to trying to have a much more practical approach to solving those problems. So I've tried very hard over the last 10 years to, uh, sort of frame the reputation of the center uh, more towards um, a group of folks who are actively engaged with stakeholders in coastal communities to try and help them develop the best way to preserve the coastal economy and the coastal environment at the same time um, with with practical science-based solutions. Yeah. Well, I think that that, that – uh that focus on the policy part of it is, uh, as I said, essential. And I understand that recently uh, you were named to a state border commission uh, charged in some way with investigating what the future of the North Carolina shoreline should be. Can you tell us about that appointment and and what that group is going to be uh, uh, trying to address? Well, this is, so this is actually in South Carolina. Uh, you're right. I forgot. My apologies. That's okay. Um, you know, to the rest of the United States, there's probably not that much difference between <laughs> us. But, uh, but yeah, so I was named by the governor of South Carolina to a, uh, a floodwater commission. That's uh, a fairly high level commission that he appointed following the last election, trying to, uh, you know, sort of finally develop some comprehensive understanding of what's exposed to flooding in the state of South Carolina and how we should begin to deal with it. And the impetus for this is really the flooding from Hurricane Florence and the storm seasons from the last three or four years, which have caused both coastal damage and inland flooding in the state. And um, it's uh, an effort that's being 
led uh, largely by a fairly conservative state mm-hmm. government that is recognizing that in order to preserve the economic vitality of the state, um, it's time to really take rising sea level seriously yeah. and the impacts that it's having on coastal flooding in the state of South Carolina, where you know the degree of king tides just seems to have jumped dramatically over the last five years, but also deal with inland flooding issues from storms like Hurricane Florence, which had significant flooding yeah. in areas of South Carolina that had not really experienced it in, in the recent past. So it's an interesting commission in that it's made up primarily of decision makers, elected officials, legislators. Uh, There are a couple of scientists on there. And you never know where something like this is going to go. The the talk has been good so far. But but to me, it's it's just as important to sort of normalize these conversations as as anything else. So I never have any grand illusions uh, when I join an effort like this at, at the state level. And I've done this several times. Never have any grand illusions that we're going to come up with some just earth shattering policy that will uh, change everything. But the fact that we have a lot of elected officials uh, coming together, talking about these issues and normalizing the conversation about the need to be concerned about coastal storms, coastal storm impact, flooding, uh, you know, that's that yeah. in itself is incredible. It valuable. is indeed. And I, I, I want to I agree with you. I'm, I, I am glad to see that the leadership in South Carolina, which you say is a, a conservative group of elected officials, uh, is taking a hard look at this issue. Uh, I like to say reality is a relentless teacher. And you may want to have a particular ideological view of uh, of sea level rise or climate change or flooding risks. Uh you can take that position sort of from an ideological uh, standpoint, but the world will teach you the extent to which that problem is real. Uh, so I've always, I'm sort of confident in the long run that coastal states and coastal communities will be coming to grips with sea level rise and risks of shoreline uh, development over time, because I think the, uh, well, the earth's going to talk to you. Uh, do you see that happening? <laughs> No, I think that's I think that's definitely true, and you, you know, this tends to be the way that things work in the United States of yeah. America. Uh, the solutions to problems tend to uh, begin more at the local level uh, and sort of then grow into something that might be a little bit more national. So it's you know, we've had a little bit of difficulty with national leadership in coastal policy over the last couple of decades, I would argue. Um, But there's clear uh, leadership beginning at the local level in many areas of all political stripes. And so, you know, that includes Miami-Dade County, Charleston, South Carolina, and state government in South Carolina, uh, the Tidewater, Virginia area, which with a very heavy Department of Defense presence, and the new leadership now from the governor in Virginia, uh, a, a lot of really interesting adaptation work and resilience work going on yeah. in New York City. So um, in the places where these flooding issues are hitting people in the face, uh, there's a lot of leadership being 
shown and very serious conversations about adaptation and resilience. And, you know, one hopes that some of the communities that aren't being impacted as directly at the moment will, you know, learn some lessons from these leadership communities and um, be a little bit more proactive. The hope here is that local communities who haven't quite experienced the full force of, uh, of climate change or sea level rise uh, or shoreline erosion uh, can look around and see the steps that uh, communities are taking who have been affected and maybe not wait for the crisis to occur. Uh, I've always thought that was one of the biggest challenges in, in public policy was whether or not a community or society can react prior to the disaster. And we'll see on this one. Uh, it's going to be uh, uh, an experience that many have, and we'll see if we can get ahead of it a little bit. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit directly about the center's goal, and if I can, I'm going to characterize it and then ask you to correct and fill it in. But when you mentioned that uh, Orrin Pilkey was a, was a, one of the favorites in the coastal engineering community, I did laugh at that, and I'm sure all the coastal engineers out there will too. Uh, but fundamentally, what the center is trying to advise, I think, is that is calling into question the wisdom of our building policies and our development policies around the American shoreline, uh, particularly on barrier islands or uh, low-lying, vulnerable shorelines. And in a policy standpoint, if I'm being fair, I hope I am, uh, that the center's point of view is we have to actually consider and attempt to implement a retreat philosophy. Is that a fair statement of what you guys, uh, the view of the world at the uh, Center for uh, Developed Shorelines? Well, I think that I would characterize it this way. Uh, We think that uh, coastal communities need to be very honest with themselves about their exposure to coastal hazards and where the problem areas are and where it makes sense to invest time, money, and infrastructure in the future and where it doesn't. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to use the word retreat to talk about what needs to happen in some places, but I think we need to be very careful as to how we define it. You know, retreat does not mean abandoning the oceanfront. It doesn't mean abandoning the barrier islands. Um, in my vision of what retreat is, it, it means that you're just gradually changing the vulnerability footprint of your community to move away from those places that are a continuing nightmare yeah. for your emergency managers and town officials and uh, focusing your resources on those parts of your community that are a little bit more sustainable. Right. And every coastal community knows exactly what I'm saying. There are the erosion hot spots, the buildings that are coming out onto the beach in in every coastal community, the place where the wind starts blowing the wrong way during a full moon and the emergency managers need to go out and watch what's happening in that one spot. Yeah. So retreat to me is finding a way, an equitable way and a sensible way to take a step back from those places and to focus your energy as a community on the parts of your town that are more sustainable or suitable for development and economic activity of the real estate. 
and to me, this is this is how you preserve the coastal economy is you have to be willing to have that kind of flexibility. So it may mean stepping away from some spots, but you're doing this because it gives you a better chance to preserve the vitality of other spots in your community. And, you know, there, there tends to be this reverence for oceanfront property that, uh, you know, that's probably what we're more critical about than anything else is, we have coastal communities that I think are literally bankrupting themselves, floating bonds and getting loans to protect a, a minuscule part of their tax base that happens to be on an eroding mm. ocean front. And while they're doing so, they're neglecting uh, the rest of that community and the rest of their tax base where they could be spending all of their time, energy and resources really preserving that the economy and the tax base of that municipality for the long run and so so that's you know that's sort of what we advocate for and we try to develop scientific tools that would allow communities in a very objective fashion to assess where that real vulnerability is so that they can make those long-term determinations to preserve the health of their well, economy. I, there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I follow the reasoning, and it's a very, it's a more nuanced and uh, a complex a statement of the position of the center and what you guys are trying to do. Uh, when you talk about communities that have uh, invested, perhaps unwisely, in in sections of their town that are inevitably. Uh, at risk and probably ultimately going to be overtaken. I, I mean, what comes to mind for me is North Topsail Beach uh, up there in uh, at, the, at the north end of Topsail Island. Uh, very difficult uh, position along the northern edge of the island and uh, the inlet there, highly unstable. Uh, boy, they've, they've declared war here and are doubling down on, on a... On a uh, an approach for uh, structures now uh, with a terminal groin proposal uh, under development. Uh, is that an example of uh, perhaps an unwise battle to take on? Well, you know, I hate to pick on um, just one community, but, uh, you know, North Thompson Beach is probably a pretty good example. You know, this is a case where, uh, Everyone in town government has to spend a significant amount of their time trying to uh, plan for the protection of, you know, what's essentially about 3% of their tax base. And in the meantime, you know, they have eliminated much of the recreational beach trying to protect those properties with this large sandbag revetment. And yeah. Yeah. At at some point you wonder when the other members of that community are going to just take a step back and say, you know, well what about us? <laughs> and yeah. Um and I Rob, I don't want to pick on them either and I'm not and I've worked for the town of North Topsail Beach and for the listeners out there full disclosure, I was a consultant to the town of North Topsail Beach and helped them develop the tax base for their original beach nourishment program that focused on the north end, but stretched along the entire length of the community over time. Uh, So I've worked 
on behalf of that community, know it pretty well. Uh, the leadership is, has changed somewhat since I've been there. Uh, but I'll tell you that my, my personal sense of it when I was working there uh, was if there was ever a place where retreat made sense to me, uh, it was the north end of, of, uh, of, of Topsail Island and in North Topsail Beach. Um, and here's, here's really one of the key things I wanted to discuss with you, Rob, is let me just broadly pose the, the, the discussion. Um, it is clear, I think, scientifically, geologically, the work that scientists do on shoreline retreat, either in the, on the, on the uh, East Coast of the United States or down here in Texas, where the Bureau of Economic Geology charts shoreline change rates over time, projects future shoreline positions. Uh, and there are lots of barrier islands that we can look at and see future shorelines well landward of where they are today. And in those zones uh, that are uh, of risk, we see intensive uh, interest in further development. Um, it is not enough. This is kind of my one of my pet phrases. It is, it is better to be effective than right. It is almost never enough to be right. And I don't think the scientific community is wrong about shoreline change. I don't think you're wrong about sea level rise or about the nature of the risks that the communities are facing. What I'm frustrated by is that the execution of that philosophy uh, has been difficult. And I, I don't blame the scientific community for that at all. Uh, what, I, what I look at and question is whether the political processes that we operate within uh, are capable of responding to this problem in a constructive way. And that's kind of a broader, a broader question. Do you think we can deliver uh, on this smarter coastal development? Are you an optimist about this? Can, do you see communities willing to overcome the resistance and the economic interests at stake here to do something different? Because I think it's far and wide. What do you what do you see in the, at the center? Well, uh, we don't have a lot of good examples of coastal communities really thinking outside the box and, and and doing something terribly different. You know, coastal resort communities are very different animals than other coastal communities, and you know, the North Carolina coastal plain or working class communities in Queens, Staten Island, you know, places like that. Um, you know, this is largely investment property. And so the calculus that people do in determining what they would like to do and how they want to run those communities is a little bit different than other places. You know, we've had a, a lot of good examples of buyouts um, inland uh, of the coast. And this is everywhere from the Mississippi River Valley um, to yep. the North Carolina coastal plain and New Jersey's blue acres program where we have, you know, I was at a presentation in Boston on Friday, um, where we saw a sort of a database of about 1200 different successful buyout programs around the country. Well, almost none of them are on the ocean front, real, basically none of them are on the ocean front <laughs> or wow. in these coastal resort communities. And, so, uh, 
you know, if everyone on the oceanfront was living in their primary residence and they were uh, all working class communities, then we, we'd probably see a little bit more action. But the stakes aren't quite as high um, for a lot of those particular property owners. Um what they might do. Well, let, let, let's let's break that down a little bit. So, one explanation you're offering here is that is that because these are investment properties as opposed to owner occupied, the calculus is a little bit different in terms of the buyout. I've never thought of that as a factor, and I don't want to discount that uh, because here's the other attribute of these coastal tourist towns, and it has to do with with who gets to vote. Uh, in in you're right, in most coastal uh, resort communities, 50, 60 or higher percent of the properties are owned uh, by people who do not live there full time and therefore are not eligible to vote there. Uh, that's true in North Topsail Beach. It's uh, it's true in many places where we have worked over the years. Um, and that is, you know, the fact that they're non-resident means that the local elected officials are a little bit more free to pay attention to the local voters. Um, so, you know, in terms of buyout, I think there's more going on there that that's the resistance to the buyout. And I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure what that is, Rob, but, but I think I agree with you that if you look around the United States along the American shoreline, um, buyouts of high risk property are uncommon. Um, I'll, I'll throw one out that I'm, familiar with, and it's Bolivar Peninsula after Hurricane Ike, uh, which I think was 2003, if if I can remember right. But there was a significant buyout program instituted there uh, that I believe took, I want to say, some hundreds of parcels off the the, uh, market. I'm not 100, you might know that story better than I do. Uh, But Along with that buyout program, uh, this barrier island peninsula was, as you know, more or less completely picked clean. I mean, there there were a few structures that were standing after the storm surge from that hurricane. And here's what happened. That area has been rebuilt at higher dollar value than it was previous to the storm. The property values went up. Uh, this market force, uh, boy, you just shake your hat and go, boy, that's unexpected. Uh, what are you familiar with what happened on Bolivar? And can you comment on that? You know, I'm not, um, as familiar with that as I'd like to be now that you asked me that question. <laughs> I, um, you know, I do recall that there was a significant buyout, following Ike um, that uh, FEMA provided some upwards of a hundred million dollars for, yeah. for buyouts yeah, following right. that storm. Um, and my recollection was that, uh, you know, it didn't go exactly the way you would want it to and that um, it didn't actually end up over the long run, removing a significant amount of land from the possibility of any future development. Um, yeah, not much on the not much on the on the on the peninsula itself. I think there were. You're right. I think that the FEMA buyout program exceeded a hundred million dollars. Uh, 
a lot of that on the mainland, I think, though. Right. That was that was for Galveston County. I don't recall what the breakdown was yeah. for, um, you know, between the peninsula and the rest of the county. Yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, again, uh, and there, there were a few properties that were purchased uh, on uh, Fire Island uh, as the Corps was desiring to do their beach and dune building project on fire island and there were some oceanfront homes that were in the footprint of the dune um but you know what we what we haven't had is very organized plans to do this slowly gradually over time in some strategic way where we have funds readily available pre-storm post-storm to uh meet the needs of a community that wants to do this in a planned, organized fashion. And, yeah, you know, I, you know the first part of your previous question, I, I think, is is really important. And that is that, you know, that to me, the, the biggest problem that we have right now with the way that we manage the oceanfront uh, nationally is sort of what you hinted at is that we we really don't have a national plan. We are spending billions of dollars. Uh, the, you know, the core has gotten an astounding amount of money um, over the yeah. last ten years or so, uh, following Katrina and then following Sandy and then uh, following the 2017 storm season. Um, the core has gotten uh, you know more than uh, twenty billion dollars from the federal government to do yeah. coastal protection from future storms. But the problem is that, you know, the money is not being spent in any way that is obviously organized or where there's any mm. national discussion as to what the federal priorities are. I mean, so we're spending a phenomenal amount of uh, federal taxpayer dollars but there's no national conversation as to where are our priorities for the spending of that well, money. Do you really think, I mean, honestly, when I, when I, I have a real doubt about whether it's some sort of grand overview on programs like this is even con- 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 conceptually possible. And I, and I don't mean to be argumentative. What I'm thinking about is having worked with coastal communities, of course, this layering of federal funds, uh, state investment, say in North Carolina or in Florida or in Texas, and then the local injection of funds, uh, the whole structure of how these projects, and I'm, and I'm thinking here mostly of beach nourishment projects, uh, dune restoration programs, uh, are driven in great part at the local level. Uh, and what I find is once a community has lined up a bunch of houses along the shoreline, uh, say on Topsail Island, for example, or in Charlotte County, North Florida, where we worked, or on Navarre Beach in the Florida Panhandle, or down in South Padre Island. Once those structures are there, uh, the the political process produces a defensive attitude. In other words, we are we are going to keep that stuff there, and we're going to spend whatever it takes to you know keep a beach in front of it. Um, and it, it, it's sort of what I've when I'm talking to local taxpayers about increasing their property taxes, which I used to do with great frequency. I would tell folks that they have already decided 
that the land is going to be in position X and the ocean is going to be in Y over there. And that decision was made when y'all permitted all this stuff and put a billion dollars on this shoreline. And what we're going to do now is pay to keep the ocean over there. And it's not cheap. And you're going to have to do it for the rest of your life. I mean, that's kind of what I tell them. You have to face the reality or you have to move. Um, and partly what I'm getting at, Rob, here is is as much as I uh, respect and agree uh, with the work that the center is trying to do, the philosophy that, look, there are just some places we can't be. I have, in my 20 years of working with coastal communities, found very little fertile ground for that sentiment. I, and I just look at it as the people who get elected. If you, if you ran in North Topsail Beach on, on a platform that we are going to abandon the North End, I don't think you get an office. And therefore, the philosophy isn't present in the, in the political system. I, that might change. But so far... Beach community elected officials uh, generally are not retreatist in their philosophy so, uh, so this, because they'll lose at the ballot box. So this is exactly my point. The problem right. is at the federal level. It's not at the local level. So if, if, if the federal government is building one giant beach from Delaware to Montauk in Long Island with a 30-foot yeah. trapezoidal dune on top of it, and it's largely yeah. at federal expense, those local communities yeah. don't have to care about the hazards that they're facing because the value of that oceanfront property is being substantially subsidized by federal taxpayers. And mm. so the conversation that we need to have is that is there in fact a federal interest in doing this? And I see. and um, not all communities are treated the same way. So we have communities no. like uh, Nags Head, Kitty Hawk, Kill Devil, uh, Duck, North Carolina that are paying for their own project. Yeah, uh, Hilton Head, North Carolina. No, sorry, Hilton Head, South Carolina pays for their own beach nourishment projects through a lodging tax. So it's not like everybody. Uh, gets a beach, you know, it's not like, oh, yeah, you're everybody right about gets that. a car, everybody gets a beach. We, right now we have this process that um, is not particularly obvious or open. We have 50-year federal projects. We have communities that are paying the entire freight for their beach nourishment project. We don't seem to have any organized plan to decide where, when, and how that happens. And we spend a, a tremendous amount of federal money along the coast without any obvious explanation for why we spend it in some places and why we don't in others and yeah. without a national vision or discussion as to where federal priorities should be. And okay. so that's answering questions like, uh, should we be spending federal money on the, the barrier island at Wallops Island, Virginia, where we have a federal launch site? Well, probably um, everybody would agree that we might. And should we be spending federal money to protect places like Manhattan? Um, yeah, know, I would guess that most people would say that there's probably a federal interest in protecting uh, lower Manhattan. Should we be spending- And even if, they, even if they don't say it, that's what's going to happen. Right. <laughs> so, but so then I mean, you get outside of those obvious areas into, um, you know, 6,000 miles 
of oceanfront shoreline and high energy yeah. shoreline in the U.S. East Coast, Gulf Coast and West Coast, where we're spending a lot of money. And where is the federal interest in holding shorelines in place on all of the rest of that shoreline? And yeah. that's what I'm referring to. That's that's the where we need to have the discussion. And when okay. when when you have the federal government um just investing such incredible largesse in rebuilding beaches in places like Sandy Hook, New Jersey, and all the coastal communities in New Jersey, then you're right. The local politicians aren't really having to deal with the reality of their own exposure and vulnerability to coastal Mm -hmm. hazards. So why in the world would they want to think too hard about any sort of policy of changing the vulnerability footprint of their community because yeah, I'm not hundred percent. I mean, there's part of that I agree with. And I think absolutely it is the unevenness of the federal investment is absolutely evident that communities that entered the federal shore protection program back in the fifties and sixties, seventies, eighties, who could get that 65% federal share for 50 years. Boy, as I call it, that's the golden ticket. If you're a beach town, uh, those tickets are not available anymore, m- more or less. Uh, federal investment on shoreline projects has sort of shifted, uh, I think, largely into the universe of disaster response funding. Uh, but, but I think at the local level, even where the locals are paying the freight, as they are in Topsail Island, and Topsail, in the town of Topsail Beach, which has no federal funds, has some state money, but is... It has a significant, about a third of their property taxes go into their beach fund. Or in Charlotte County, Florida, where we finished a uh, funding strategy for them, you know, about a year ago, uh, this is a, a place where there's no federal money. There is a hope for somewhere around a third from the state, but 65% of it locally funded between the county and the beachfront owners, even in cases where they're not insulated from the costs, the community's dedication to those shoreline properties exists. And and it it raises an economic interest question I want to ask you about. When you talk about the the, sort of the largest of the federal investment, the sort of the the profligate spending uh, on the shoreline, there are folks down in Florida and and the Shorn Beach Magazine article on the economics of the beaches and analysis and communities around the country, the argument that is made is that these features, a publicly accessible, wide, healthy beach, is a huge economic driver and that the return on investment is substantial. How does that fact, is that generally true, number one? Do you see it that way? And number two, how does that factor in, that that perception? Because that's certainly the argument that is made. And I'm kind of convinced there's something to it. Well, I find it interesting that, you know, you just told us that uh, one third of the taxes in, in Topsail Beach go to yeah. that beach fund. Yeah. Um, and in the north end of the island, they're protecting only 3% of the tax base. So that seems like a little bit of a crazy imbalance to me. Okay. <laughs> um, and we've crunched the numbers on that. So I, you know, I promise you that, that when I say that that's a third of the uh, that's three percent of the tax base. I believe you there. Then that's. But I mean, the the town of Topsail Beach invests uh, 
invest about a third of its property taxes into its beach management fund. And, and, and it's a town of, you know, eight, about less, fewer than a thousand people. They have a financially viable shoreline management program. They pump sand onto that beach and they pay most of the freight. Uh, and I think in that case, they believe it's economically justifiable. I, I will grant you sort of the North Topsail Beach investment for a small percentage of its property value. There are cases where it just doesn't make sense, but how does this economic argument, I mean, you've read it, right? You've read the analysis uh, that, that comes out of, that came out of Florida, the statewide study that just says, you know, the beach is the thing. And this is what makes the economy of Florida click. And we are going to invest in this like we invest in other infrastructure. I don't, what about, I mean, is that, I don't think anybody would dispute that the beach is the economic engine for coastal communities. Okay. Uh, you know, I think that that's, that's absolutely clear. The question is, how do you preserve the beach? Okay. And beach nourishment is uh, a way to preserve the beach by continuously pumping sand in front of the first row of oceanfront property. The primary yeah. beneficiaries of that is not the entire community. The primary beneficiaries are, are those oceanfront property owners because that beach project is supporting the value of all of that oceanfront property. You can right. envision a scenario for a place like North Topsail where you could remove the 300 plus properties on the north end of the island and allow the beach to reposition itself where you wouldn't have to be pumping sand as frequently and right. uh, develop a nice coastal amenity out there that would return the beach in the same way that beach nourishment would, it's just that the beach would be in a slightly yeah. different place. Yeah. And um, it, that's a way that could be construed as being a little bit more equitable. So right. you know, the, the, the question here is, um, you know, and I'm, believe me, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing beach nourishment anywhere. I'm saying that I don't think that we have an honest enough appraisal of where we should be doing it and where it makes sense and where it doesn't and who should be paying right. for it. And yeah. the, the more that the cost of, of that beach nourishment project is incorporated into the local economy, the more seriously those local elected officials will take their responsibility for managing it well. And, you know, the big problem with North Topsail is that the beach is gone. And it's not, it's, yeah. it's not that, um, <laughs> you know, that they re-nourish every now and then. It's right. It's that now the erosion rate is so quickly that they can't actually pump the sand up fast enough yeah. with the money that they have to actually yeah. maintain a beach in front of the properties. Mm, I, I understand. Let's talk about, let, let's, and this is one of the things I wonder if the center is working on because, uh, and, and I wish somebody would, but let's let's hypothetically take a, a community that has decided that a particular portion of its uh, beachfront development is really just unsalvageable. It's 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 too economically burdensome to to handle. It's the engineering doesn't quite work out. Uh, that kind of thing. Let's say they've they've decided we're going to get out of the way, and. And and I bring this up because it introduces the other barrier to executing what I think is a rational conclusion in some places. And 
what it would require, of course, is that the town acquire first the property. They've got to either use eminent domain or reverse condemnation or some government power to dispossess, number one. They have to gain the right to the structures in the property, uh, which is obviously a difficult thing to do. And, and what we're introducing here, of course, is the entire constitutional concept of takings in that the government cannot acquire your property without just compensation. That's step one. Step two, and I want to come back and talk about these, but step two, I'll simply say, is the physical removal of the structures, which to me sounds like a bulldozer and a front loader and a bunch of dump trucks, and you're going to like crush this stuff up, put it in a truck, and haul it off the island over to the mainland and put it in a landfill. Um, I mean, this is a a reality that coastal communities who wish to rethink what they're doing must face. How do I mean, what? How many years does it take to possess to take? I mean, this has happened in North Carolina. It's a just step one is massively difficult and expensive to do. And I mean, yeah. the acquiring the rights to the property just just that step right there is massively difficult. Well, to um you know, to buy the 300 plus uh, most northerly oceanfront properties in North Topsail Beach, North Carolina, at their current assessed tax value would cost about $30 million. That sounds fairly inexpensive to me. Exactly. (laughs) It does. But that's if you have a willing seller. If you could write a check and they would take it, then I think you're right. But they don't. But What do you do if they resist? We don't know because nobody's ever even created some sort of straw man vision and, and opened up a discussion with all stakeholders in an oceanfront resort community to find out how it would work. I mean, this is... This is the next step that needs to happen. And, All right. you know, and I don't want to uh, talk about it in too much detail, but if you stay tuned okay. to the program for the study of developed shorelines, you may see something like that coming out in the next couple of weeks. It's a well, great, um, because I really think that's a, the appropriate question to ask, Rob, is, is, is really how do you execute it beyond the theoretical? Well, I know that you can, that there is a price that can be paid and you can look at an appraised value and you can see it. But if I remember my cases from North Carolina correctly, there were a couple of beach houses in, I forget, was it, God, like, I'm going to be wrong about this, Nags Head, that didn't have a certificate of occupancy that were out on the beach that went to court for years to try to get that structure down. I mean, isn't that where we're going to end up in court for years with millions of dollars in legal fees to try to transact these buyouts well potentially so um but everybody has their price right and so you have to uh, you you know what property owners are willing to accept will depend on a lot of factors um i think that if you're looking at an area that is uh so incredibly vulnerable that the nature itself is going to take those homes away yeah that's um, why I say sue God if your property and, and the town because it's being taken by yeah and, the and powers. The, and the town and decides they, to walk away from the coastal protection, then the, the town has some leverage. So 
um, you know, it's a you'd have to look at this on a case by case basis. But look, we we've moved entire communities out of the floodplain in the Mississippi River Valley. Yeah. So um, the idea that this is impossible, well, it's just it's just not true. It is definitely not impossible. And the uh, we interviewed uh, folks from Louisiana about the Isle uh, the Isle de Jean Charel. Uh, I think I'm mispronouncing that for sure, which is a community that has been bought out in the Mississippi River Delta, the entire town. And the state is investing a lot of uh, uh, CDBG money, HUD money, to purchase and build a new town for this community. Uh, There are examples. There absolutely are. So I don't want to suggest that it's impossible, but I think it's in the idea of pragmatism and realism and being effective and not just right, this is the pathway I think has not been explored. And I'm really pleased to hear that the center is investing energy is to look at the actual physical reality and the legal reality of the process that will have to be undertaken. And I think if you could advise a town seriously that, look, this is going to take you five years We've talked to the homeowners, some are willing, some are not. There are going to be litigation here. These are the powers you're going to, to exercise. This is what we think it might cost you to get possession. And then once you own it, you're going to pay a bunch of money to dis- demolish this stuff or relocate the structures if that is possible. And sometimes that is. Uh, I think if someone were to sort of chart it very clearly, um, it might, it's got that, what might open the door. Uh, but Rob, remember that during that process, those guys are going to be up for election and people are going to run against them and say, we're going to save the North end We're this is unconstitutional. You know, in other words, the political reality also comes into play. And this is where I think the center, if I can pitch something, I'm pitching that I want to see that thought through because I do think there's room to, to make headway. It just—I don't think that work's been done. So, no, there there are no good, detailed straw man plans for how this might work on the ocean front and what the economic trade-offs would be. You know, what what are the benefits? What are the costs? Um, and and you know that's that's important. And you know, I think that um, you know what what you need is something that everybody in the entire community can look at and decide whether it makes sense for everyone in the community or not. And so in the situation of North Topsail, um, just imagine if you're out there in the North end and you own a home on the third row and for several years now, there's been no beach for you to go to or for your renters to go to because of the way that that beach is being managed and protected with the sandbag revetment. Um, And, temporary right yeah so (laughs) if the alternative is um you know a process that might lead to this new coastal amenity with a usable beach on the north end of the island that would uh increase the value of everybody else's property who's remaining uh, let's face it it, all humans tend to be fairly self-interested so i see um you know the a, a successful plan needs to 
to some degree, target the 97% of the tax base that isn't under erosion threat and uh, convince those folks that there are substantial benefits to them, their property values, and their summer rental rates if a, yeah. if a plan like this were to go through. And that, that gets the local elected officials interested. You know? It's a great foothold. Yeah, yeah I think. Yeah. And you still have to find a way to offer an equitable settlement to the people within your community that you might be asking to step away. Um, of and course. there will be some people, especially in a community like North Topsa, which has modest homes. You know, this is not the Hamptons um, where, you know, $30 nice, million in the yeah. Hamptons could, could, couldn't even buy you two houses in Sagaponic. Um, but you know, I would guess that there are, uh, and and I, you know, I know this because I've spoken with some property owners that there are people who are ready to go. They're tired of having homes that, um, are surrounded by water in every King tide. And, you know, if they can be made even modestly whole, they're they're ready to take that money and try and invest it someplace else. That's, um, uh, So I'm beginning to see the cornerstones. And I, what I would say is, is I think your description of the endpoint, you know, say it is a, a large publicly uh, owned space at, at the north end of Topsail Island, uh, you know, beautiful dunes, access, boardwalks, places to get to the beach, you know, no revetment needed, none of that happening. I get, I see that picture and I absolutely agree with you that rationally, that makes great sense. I also think you're right when you suggest that the outside forcing agent, and I, this is what I think philosophically is a very powerful tool in, in the progression of this discussion, is that there is an independent third-party force at work here. As I say, reality is a relentless teacher that will continue to put pressure on these decisions. And, you know, it Thankfully, I mean, uh, this is happening uh, with it beyond our control, so we can't turn it off. We can't make that not happen. It does drive the discussion. But I'll tell you, Rob, I think in equal measure to finding the right price, that everybody has a point, though, there's an economic equation to this, 100% true. Thinking through the political execution In other words, the instrument of action here is a group of elected officials who are going to take a vote in a county commissioner meeting or a city council meeting, and it'll get to the legislature. And if you have to contend, this is stuff scientists hate, people who are rationalists hate, is the chaotic nature of of political decision making. But That is part of the puzzle. In fact, I think it is the foundation that you have to figure out how to solve the political equation or great ideas die. Well, the, um, you know, most of the successful larger scale buyout plans uh, that we see around the country start with a real stakeholder engagement rather than engaging the elected officials in the town because you know those are okay. the folks that really have to buy into some degree so 100% correct i believe so you're if, right there you know what when it comes to a, some spot where there may be some vote that needs to be taken in the municipality or in the with the county commissioners 
Um, you want them to be voting on something that they know that their electorate has already embraced. 100% um, right. Because if they're not doing that, then, I mean, who they in won't. the world wants to stick their neck out? They uh, won't. So, I, you know, I think that um, the way this has to progress is you have to have some sort of honest assessment for sort of cost and benefits for a project like this. But, but then you need somebody that's going to engage with the stakeholders um, in a reasonable fashion to, uh, you know, to see what's realistic and what's not realistic and, and uh, to sort of feel out what uh, sort of buyout costs might be reasonable for those who might be targets. What are their real needs? What do they want? What, what would they want to be able to do with that money that they got? Right. And also engage the rest of the community to rally support for the idea that, um, you know, a, a, a buyout of 3% of our tax base doesn't mean the end to our coastal community. Of course not. It, it, that, in fact, it could be the beginning of a, a new coastal community that's even more resilient and is able to focus resources elsewhere. So I, you yeah, know, yeah. I, you know, I agree with what you said. And the, the solution to that is stakeholder engagement early on. And, um, you know, so that when it comes to that point where the politicians finally have to uh, make their call in public, that uh, they're just jumping on the bandwagon rather than having to. Well, I'm glad you said, put it that way, because and, and this is no criticism to the elected officials out there. Uh, when we were engaged uh, by local, by counties or cities or other uh, elected organizations that are facing this problem and they're trying to put money together, they're trying to raise taxes, uh, I always looked at it as our job is to bring the community to the meeting in, an, in a way that these guys can vote yes. That is, it's not because they're courageless. Nothing, nothing is crass as saying elected officials don't have the guts to vote. That's not the way that America works. It's based on if the community wants it, they're going to vote for it. And you have to do the work. You have to solve the problem. You got to get down there and talk to the folks. And I'll tell you this other thing, Rob, is when you talk about if the community understands it, that the rest of the community's interest is served by this buyout of this smaller area, it looks a great picture. It's a beautiful endpoint. The problem with stopping at that level of, and I'm not saying you're stopping at that, but you have to remember, of course, that the individual to dispossess that person of ownership is an individual decision by, by it's an individual exercise of power by the government in some form and the, and the owner of that property. And by God, they've got constitutional rights that I respect. And I don't care what the rest of the town thinks. If that guy doesn't want to do it or that woman who owns that property says, you know what, this is my grandmother's house. I'm going to die trying to keep it. And you're going to have to confront that. And the, the, the wisdom of this and the interest of the larger community is secondary in that question. That's kind of why I think as rational as this stuff is, we haven't figured out how to even talk it through in the right context. And I don't know. I, I'm frustrated. 
I, by I, the fact that we can't seem to pull off what is obviously something that we know is not the right, you know, we need to make different decisions, but we just can't get there. I just, I, I find it frustrating. You know, I think, I think that you'd be surprised how many groups have crossed that bridge and have had this exact same conversation and, and have found successful ways okay. to, to, to get the, the kinds of outcomes that you would want. And, uh, you know, the, again, these, the, the New Jersey's blue acres program is an excellent example. Okay. Um, and again, it's not on the ocean front. Um, but, but I think that on the ocean front, you're going to find far fewer people who are living in a home or a condo unit that was bought by their grandma. <laughs> and yeah, that's you know, true. There's that, a few of those, but not much left uh, you in know, that way. Compared to the working class neighborhoods that have uh, experienced some buyouts in Staten Island and Queens and Tom's River, New Jersey, and places like that, um, you know, there are uh, people who specialize in those kinds of. Uh, negotiations and stakeholder agreement yeah. and it wouldn't be me um <laughs> you know so to, to some degree it's the, the job of the scientists to identify the properties that are extremely exposed and vulnerable to coastal hazards in a very objective scientific way yes so, so here's you know first you need this very objective scientific process that says here's where the problem is based on this data and then you can um, sort of crunch the economics to see what the cost would be right. and what the benefits and costs. But then um, you would need to turn turn that over, I think, to people who are a little bit more skilled at yeah. um, assessing the sort of stakeholder needs and desires and working with the community to go through the back and forth on, you know, what's feasible, what's not feasible, who's interested, who's not interested and, and how it might actually happen. And, it, you know, and all of that doesn't start with a vote in the town council. It's, it starts sort of more from the grassroots level with stakeholder engagement. That's a very good description. And, and Rob, it's one of the reasons I'm, I, I'm very interested in the work at the Center for Developed Shoreline. I'm very interested in the fact that you're integrating in the policy and economic considerations into the work that you do. Uh, I can tell you local elected officials around the country that we've encountered uh, understand what you're saying. What they can't figure out is how to get to the other side. And, and you know, we're missing a piece here. You're right. The scientists have to do the rational understanding. You can look at the economics. You can line this stuff up. It is not the job of the coastal geologists out there and uh, other scientists to sort of execute this politically. But elected officials need the help. Uh, and and there's something missing in the, in the cogs, I think, in the gears a little bit uh, that's that's holding this back. And I, I just think it's something that we're trying to follow and uh, that I would like to continue to have an open discussion with you guys as your work advances, because I think uh, local elected officials around the country who, who manage shoreline communities uh, suffer and struggle with this stuff a lot. It's a difficult problem. Uh, and you guys contribute to that, uh, moving that ball forward. So you know, thanks for taking the time to walk us through it. Um, any 
thoughts, closing comments? What do you think, Rob? Can we get, can we make some progress here? <laughs> well, you know, I think that the fact of the matter is that we are not going to be able to hold every shoreline in place along the entire East Coast, Gulf Coast, West Coast of the U.S. forever. Um, we are going to have to help coastal communities find creative ways to allow portions of their shoreline to, to move um, over time. And, you know, the, the urgency for this will really depend on the rate of sea level rise in the yeah. future. I mean, I always tell folks that, um, you know, I, I, we don't need to talk about any nightmare scenarios for sea level rise by the end of the century to understand this one basic fact. Um, the fact that sea level is rising can tell you that in your particular community, any erosion issue that you're having right now, any erosion hotspot or any need for beach nourishment is only going to increase in the future. It's not going to get better. So yeah. that's that's the plain truth. <laughs> None yeah. of uh, our eroding shorelines are going to suddenly stabilize. And the places where there's erosion hotspots, they're not going to miraculously get better. Yeah. Um, this is an endless long-term commitment. And what rising sea level tells us is that in the future, it's only going to continue to get, uh, unfortunately, it's going to only continue to get harder to hold those shorelines in place, not easier. It just, and the rate of sea level rise will tell us, you know, how fast it's going to get more difficult. And that's just the truth. And right now on the whole, we are largely lying, relying on federal subsidies to stabilize shorelines all the way from southern Maine or around to Padre Island, Texas. And um, I think that given the financial tenor of our country, it's not realistic to imagine that coastal communities are going to be able to rely on those federal dollars forever. And so... The responsible thing to do is to uh, take a very honest assessment of how you can sort of factor the cost of being in that place into your local economy, plan for the future, and seriously consider um, how you might change the footprint of your community in a way that allows you to shift your resources from the places that are an absolute erosion and emergency management nightmare to those places that are more sustainable. That's really my big picture vision for coastal management. That is common sense, Rob, is what I tell you. That's, uh, that does make sense. The trick is in the execution. Uh, thank you, Dr. Robert Young, uh, the director of the Center for Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina University, one of the leading thinkers in America on shoreline development and uh, the notion that we need to think differently. And uh, Rob, I really want to thank you. I know this has been, a, I know you're a busy guy and it's taken us a while to put this together, but I really do appreciate it. And I hope that we have a chance to speak again as, as your work advances. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, so folks out there, the American Shoreline Podcast Network, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. Subscribe. You'll get all of the shows on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Believe it or not, there are 16 shows from a variety of professional 
uh, perspectives on the American shoreline. And keep up with us on Coastal News Today. Find us at CoastalNewsToday.com. Really appreciate it, Rob. Thanks a lot and have a great day over there in North Carolina. Stay warm.